Okay. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. You know, finishing the, um, the series that I've been doing on Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1 with this message. It's the last portion of the little appendix that we did on the just shall live by faith. The first part of it was the question of who the just are. And I know that would have been a challenge for many. And, um, and I pray that you had a better understanding on who the just actually are. And that you are or you are not in that position. This next section is what it means to live by faith. Faith in what? And that's the question. And we turn to the book of Habakkuk chapter 2 because this is the first, first time this actually shows up in the scripture. And, um, and there's a handful of points that I wanted to bring out from it. So let's read the text. So it's Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to read from 1 to 4. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Let's pray. My Lord and my God, you do such a wonderful work in history, dear Father, and you've created all things for your purpose and for your will. You've created man, dear Lord, for your glory. You've given us your word for a greater understanding of who you are and, and indeed, dear Lord, that we might be blessed by it. Father, no, no, not only have we got salvation, but we have the wonderful words of our Lord and Saviour. You've given that to us, dear Lord, to show to us, dear Father, how we may live, but also, dear Lord, to give us an insight into who you truly are, that we would love you more. Pray, dear Lord, that you would be with us, that you would work within our lives and our heart this morning, and that we would recognise the wonderful joy and the truth of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first point that I want to bring out is that Habakkuk had a ready heart. He had a ready heart. We identified in the first part of this incredible phrase, the just shall live by faith. We noted who the just are. That they are all those that believed in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. As a result, Scripture teaches that a, a new heart is actually given us. The Bible says, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I, will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh, in Ezekiel 36. This new heart is now tuned specifically to be able to receive the words of God through faith. And the Bible says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Our hearts need to be prepared to receive the truth of God's words. And we need to decide to walk by faith and not by sight. This is a decision that we have to make. I want you to consider Habakkuk is not very different from you and I. You know, in, in, in chapter 1, he he's also has a little bit of doubt. And he says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. And then, if we're willing to humble ourselves and seek God with all our heart, our new heart, this is the new heart that the Lord's given us, we'll receive the promise as did he. Ten verses later he says, Art thou not from everlasting, O oh Lord, my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Habakkuk has moved his position from questioning God to knowing that his judgments are sure. When it comes to living a life by faith, we need to first have that ready heart. 
By chapter 2, Habakkuk already had a ready heart, and he decides, I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower. Note that not only has he willed a decision, I will stand. But he's also prepared in his heart. He says, I will stand upon my watch. He's watching eagerly for the word of God. He's looking, he's seeking, he's making that decision. And it's followed by an action on his part. And set me upon the tower. Habakkuk has made this decision and he's preparing himself. He's ready. He's ready to receive the outcome of his decision. What is it that he's waiting for? What's he looking for? Well, in that same verse it says, And we'll watch to see what he will say unto me. The Bible says that, See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. In Hebrews chapter 12. A ready heart does not refuse him that speaks. As the words of God he waits for and trusts in, it's the words of God that we are to have faith in. When the scripture speaks that the just shall live by faith, the answer to the question, faith in what? It's faith in his words. It's faith in his words. There's three repetitions of this phrase in scripture, three of them. It's found in Romans, it's found in Galatians, it's found in the book of Hebrews. It's a trilogy of truth that wonderfully expounds this really simple phrase. The just. Who are the just? The book of Romans deals with this. Who are the just? Shall live. Well, how shall they live? The book of Galatians, the entire book of Galatians speaks so clearly on how we should live. By faith. Well, faith in what? The book of Hebrews deals so perfectly with this as the Jews sought to return to the sacrificial priesthood rather than accept the mediator of a better covenant, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's a return to the word of God and it's by faith. And he speaks about that so plainly in Hebrews chapter 11. Each repetition of this phrase is clear that our faith is founded in the words of God. That's the answer. Really, I should be able to just stop there and let you ponder. But that's the answer. The answer is faith in his words. It's not faith in some sort of feeling. It's not faith in some sort of vision that you dream up within your own mind. It's not faith in dreams. It's not faith in anything else. It's faith in the words of God. Second point. A righteous command. The Lord says, write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. The Bible says, holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. I noted last week that God can hold men accountable only because he has made it plain upon tables. When holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost, they did so exactly as God had moved them. In history, when faithful believers made copies of God's words, they did so believing that they were God's words. Adding to them or taking from them was as foreign to them as perhaps it would be you copying a letter from a loved one, perhaps a, a parent, to another loved one. You wanted to retain that original copy, they wanted it to be yours, but you both loved, say it's a sibling, and say it was a parent that passed away. You both loved that sibling and the parent, that you wanted to translate that word, that you wanted to write that word perfectly as he had it. You know? Because if you don't write it exactly as he, how that individual has it, what does it show? It shows a lack of love and respect for the individual that actually authored it. So we wouldn't do that. Faithful Christians wouldn't do that. And yet, we have in our society so many variations of what God said. And it's particular because it's in the English language. Very particular in the English language and it's really curious. In the English language we have hundreds of versions of God's words. 
We have faith in the word of God and that's how we're supposed to live. Which ones? Which ones? There's hundreds of variations of what God supposedly said. Was this done by faithful men? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. We argue from dusk till dawn about what God said because each have their own personal preference of God's words. Idolatry, idolatry is evidenced in the reality of multiple Bible versions so that every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Idolatry is not holding to one book regardless of preference. Just as there's only one God, so there can only be one book. This isn't rocket science. You know, I'm an atheist friend of mine that um, doesn't believe, doesn't believe in God. And I once asked him a question. It was a simple question. I just said, you know, we believe that the Bible is the word of God. He said, yeah. I said, just out of curiosity, how many versions of the word of God would you expect there to be? And he goes, one. You know, he knows. How we Christians just seem to take it for granted that, you know, Having all these different variations of what God said is, is, is okay. Where do we get that? Where do we get that? Muslims know it. One of the biggest criticisms of us is that we've got all these errors. We've got all these different versions. We've got no clue what God really said. They know. And Christians live exactly in light of that. They've got no clue what God has said. I was having a chat with a guy uh, recently who's a Christian, uh, preached at his church a little while ago, and he said to me he had Mormons that were constantly bothering him. They were phoning him up all the time. He made the little mistake of befriending a Mormon on an aeroplane. And she goes, oh, I'd love to stay in contact with you. Can I have your phone number? And he goes, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, innocent, innocent, very innocent Christian. You know, and he shares the phone number because he thinks, yeah, it gives me a lot more opportunity. I can share the truth. Mate, since that time, he has had phone call after phone call from every Mormon in the US and in Australia and all over the place trying to talk to him about Mormonism. You know what the biggest argument to him was? Because he said, which book do you believe? The Bible or the Book of Mormon? Which one's your precedent? And they said the Book of Mormon. And he goes, but the Bible is older. He said, yeah, but the Bible's been changed. Time and time and time again. Which Bible are you talking about? Which Bible? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. Which Bible? If we're going to have faith, if we have to live by faith, what is it that we're putting our faith in, brethren? What are we putting our faith in? The shifting sands of the opinions of man? Or the foundation of the Word of God? Where is it? Many men have themselves, are themselves unbelieving with respect to God. Perfectly preserving that which he inspired at the first. Choosing to believe that all scripture was given by inspiration of God, rather than accepting the text as it stands in the present tense. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Therefore, many feel completely at ease with correcting God's words. During a Bible conference, one pastor after another diligently corrected God's words. By inferring and stating that God had not meant what was said and then transplanting that word with another of their own choosing. A young girl was understood to ask her mother, Mummy, if God didn't mean what he said, why didn't he just say what he meant? Out of the mouths of babes, huh? So simple. Another illustrative story was when a man was found, found himself in hospital with an illness his pastor came to visit him and he noticed that the man had what looked like a Bible on his bedside. When he examined the book, he found words rubbed out, other words added in, and then some of those added in words, they were changed to other words, and many pages were torn out of the Bible and some loose-leaf pages were stapled in. The pastor looked at the sick man and asked, what had he done to his Bible? The man simply stated that every time you said the proper interpretation is, or another word is... Or well, this is incorrect, the proper rendering is, I simply made the corrections in the text. He said, I dare say that another few years under your preaching and I would not really have a Bible left. As often as you hear that said, make note of it. 
the righteous command God gives us. The righteous command. Write the vision, make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. Psalm 11.3 says, If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? What's the foundation of our faith? Most pastors don't understand that when they cause doubt in a single word, they create doubt in the entire word. They play directly into the devil's hands. The one who hates God's words and was the first to create doubt in them. Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar. God held Adam accountable to know his words. Adam's decision was not made through deception. He wasn't deceived. He knew what God had told him. God had spoken to him directly. Eve was the one that was deceived. Adam rebelled. We know that through history. When God spoke to Moses in the wilderness, he did so plainly, didn't he? God held Moses accountable to his words, which is the very reason why Moses wasn't allowed to enter into the promised land. God said to him to speak unto the rock. But Moses smote the rock. He did it twice. Smote it twice. Ask a question just as a side. Why did God ask Moses to speak unto the rock? Why did he ask him to speak to the rock? Because the rock was a picture of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.4, that rock that followed them was Christ. Now, remember that this is the second time God had actually commanded Moses. This is the second time God had instructed Moses a way of being able to get the water out of the rock to give life unto the people. It's the second time, it's not the first. The first time was in the book of Exodus. And the first time he told Moses to strike the rock. To smite the rock so the water would come out. But this next time, he told him to speak unto the rock. He told him to speak to the rock. He said, speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. Why? Because it was a picture of the gospel, people. It was a picture of the gospel. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Our Lord was once smitten. It was one sacrifice, one offering that he gave. No longer is there a need to offer our Lord as a perpetual sacrifice. For this he did once and for all. But now we petition him, don't we? We speak. We petition the Lord. Now we speak into the rock and the water of life flows ever so freely. Brethren, God has his reasons to write what he writes and do as he does Don't presume too much based on your own limited understanding. Moses didn't see the picture of the gospel in this. He was filled with the flesh at this particular point. That's why he was to smite the rock the first time and then petition it the second. Isn't that wonderful? God's got this right through scripture, you know. But it wasn't just him. We mentioned another example and it was King Saul. It was King Saul and what he did. And in 1 Samuel 15, God said to um, Samuel, he says, Now go and smite Amalek as an instruction to give to Saul. This is a fantastic story. Listen carefully. It's a really good story. Now go and smite Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. Was that clear? Clear. But Saul and the people spared Agag. The king. And the best of the sheep and of the oxen. And of the fatlings and the lambs. And all that was good. And would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse. They destroyed utterly. Interesting. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel saying. It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king. For he has turned back from following me. And hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. Verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. You think you're doing well, you think you're doing right. So did Saul. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of oxen which I hear? What did Samuel remember? What did God say? 
Wipe it out utterly. He didn't want anything alive. Why is he hearing sheep? Why is he hearing the lowing of ox? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord their God. So they spared the best of them to sacrifice it. And the rest have we utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. Remember, we mentioned last week about pride. And it's often pride that gets in the way of trusting and believing and holding to the words of God. What's he say here? When you were little in your own sight. He was tall of stature, Saul, but he was little in his own sight. And that's why God had made him king. And the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone by the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord their God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. This simple rejection of not obeying God's words in the sight of God had such consequence. Had such consequence. Did King Saul obey the word of the Lord or did he reject them? He followed them in part, didn't he? He did follow them in part. Can you relate to this guy? Can you relate to Saul? Do you follow it just in part? Let me ask you, what parts did he follow? The ones he agreed with. He followed the ones he agreed with. The ones that he didn't really hold to, he took it on his own accord, thinking his own way better. How many times have you done that? I've done that. I've done that. In John 12, 48, Jesus said simply, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. If the words of God is what man will be judged by, it stands to reason we must have them. Otherwise, it can't be a righteous command. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words. Brethren, the two actions are one. We reject Christ when we receive not his words, just as Saul rejected God by rejecting his commands. God gives righteous commands. He makes it plain upon tables. Point three, a reliable witness. A reliable witness. Our Lord is a reliable witness. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. As I alluded to last week, God can promise because he is the only one that is in control of events. God can't lie. God can't lie. He can't lie for two reasons. One, because it's completely outside of his character. But there's a second reason. He doesn't need to. He is in control of everything that happens within time. He is in control. Why does he even need to lie? There's no point to it. In Jeremiah 32, he says, Our Lord, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm. And is there, any, is there nothing too hard for thee? And there is nothing too hard for thee, he says. And then a little bit later, the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Is there anything too hard for God? Oh, hang on, hang on. But maybe 
providing his word in a language that we can understand perfectly, maybe that's too hard. Maybe that's too hard. Maybe man has gotten into the way of the perfect plan of God. Maybe man has decided to doctor and modify God's words to the point where it's no longer truly preserved. Maybe. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Is that that what the word of God indicates to us? Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says simply, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Friends, doesn't this universe tell you that there's nothing too hard for God? Doesn't life, the very existence of life and how it manifests itself to us, doesn't that show you that God can do anything? Everything that we see is made of the unseen. We've spoken about that. You know, and we didn't discover that until last century, you know, and yet the Bible has been teaching that. The Bible says, lo, he that sits upon the circle of the earth, where does this flat earth idea come from? It doesn't come from the text, it doesn't come from scripture, it comes from paganism is where it comes from. Because why? They don't have the wonderful revelation of God, what God has already declared. Matthew Murray Fontaine found the paths of the seas. The modern shipping lanes that we have today is based on what Matthew Murray Fontaine found in the Psalms. God has made a way in the seas, the paths of the seas. He says there must be paths then. He took it literally. He read it literally. He read it exactly as it says. And he went searching for them. And today our modern shipping lanes are based on that. He is the father of oceanography. There's a statue of him where he, where he died. I think it's in, it's in England. And he's, he sits and he's got a book right by his foot. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. How wonderful. How wonderful. God has the power to save us from eternity, from one eternity to another. And we think that somehow God doesn't have the ability to be able to give us his Word perfectly preserved. Is God a reliable witness? Is he a reliable witness? Turn in your Bibles to Psalm, Psalms 12, Psalms chapter 12. Psalm chapter 12. Book of Psalms chapter 12. That question and the question that I had when I was going through my struggles with respect to the word of God was this question of, of God preserving it and and what the Bible actually means to God and I thought how am I going to live by faith and the question was always faith in what faith in what I mean what do I have faith in I came out of a charismatic church and all they did was feel everything and it felt right and I had one person after another get to the pulpit with another word of knowledge and another person come to the pulpit and saying he had a dream you know and I'm thinking, well, what's true? And one guy coming up there, I remember him saying, there's going to be a flood. And I thought to myself, hang on, doesn't the Bible say there's no more going to be flood? No more flood anymore. Oh, the next time it's going to be fire, it's not going to be flood. And he's speaking about a flood, and obviously he was speaking allegorically or whatever, but what's his final authority? What is his final authority for coming up with something like that? Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 And seven, the Bible says the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. I didn't originally believe that I had the very words of God until I read this verse. Oh, I'm a skeptic, guys. I don't know. I know it doesn't seem like it may be, but I'm a skeptic by nature. I really am. I did everything back to front. I read books and more and more and more on this issue. So many books on this. And I got to the point where I realised, yeah, the King James Bible is the best. The best. But there had to be something more than that. It couldn't just be the best with a handful of errors in there. It it couldn't be because then if it's got an error in it, then, then, then... How do I know that the word that I'm reading is the right word? The words of the Lord are pure words. Is this a pure word? The words of the Lord are present tense, not past. Not past. Present tense. 
is this a pure word or is this an error? And then all these other questions come into my head. They're saying that there's errors in the Bible, and I'm thinking, well, how do they know that they're errors? If they know that they're errors, then they know the answer. So if they know the answer, why don't they just create a book that's without error and be done with it? What's with this ever annual increase in Bible versions? What is that? It doesn't make any sense, does it? Or am I the only one that can't see that this, this doesn't make any sense? The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. The NIV completely mutilates that last chapter, that last verse. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep us, O Lord, from such people forever. Did you get it? They think that the first person, the plural pronoun there in us, it's in first person. It's not. It's in the third. It's in the third in the so-called originals. But they turn it around so they don't have the preservation of the word of God there. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25 says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which, this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. We don't have the gospel if we don't have God's words. How many times does our Lord need to make it clear? Our Lord, we have it repeated three times. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away Matthew 24 25 heaven and earth shall pass away but my words plural shall not pass away Mark 13 31 heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall not pass away Luke 21 33 and praise God for it whose responsibility is it to preserve his words whose it's his it's his word his responsibility. Now ask you seriously, would God take the trouble to inspire each and every word at the first only to lose them in time? Why would he do that? If the gospel was so important back then, is it not just as important as it is to us today? Do we not need it more today than they even needed it back then? I mean, look at this society that we're in. Does God think so little of his word? Is, is God's word important to him? Do you think God's word's important to him? Turn your Bibles to Psalm 138. 138. Still in the Psalms. Turn to chapter 138. You have to see this because this was another one of those things that just, it really cemented it for me because, you know, again, you sort of think that God's not really serious about his word and then you read stuff like this and just, and I've got to take it literally. I can't think, oh yeah, that's true, but I've got some evidence, you know. Verse 2. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Wow. That's unbelievable. Brethren, not only has God magnified his word above all his name, but he has directly identified himself with his word. Gospel of John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We want to make it more specific. We want to make it more, we want to really point the finger at who is the word of God. 13 verses later in verse 14, same book, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the word of God? It's our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. He is identified as the word of God. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, it's the perfect picture of the Trinity. It's one of those verses that we have in our Bible that if people doubt the Trinity, you go here. All right? Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in the Trinity, you take them here. Okay? You take them here. But only if you've got the authorised version of the Scriptures. You can't take them here if you've got an NIV. I'll explain why in a minute. First John 5, 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. Three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, 
and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. One. Three are one. The Father. Who? The Word. Who's the Word? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Modern translations. You know when I said you don't know if they're really godly people? that They lie here. They don't take the verse out. It doesn't go from verse 6, skips verse 7, goes to verse 8. They don't take the verse number out. 16 other times they do. You know that? It goes from one particular point, and I've got a list of them. It goes from one point and it just completely skips the verse. So the verse isn't even there. People have read these, the, these modern renderings all the time and they don't notice that there's, there's verses missing. These people don't do that. They lie. They split verse 8 and they push it up to verse 7. They take verse 7 out completely. They split verse 8 in half and number it verse 7. So verse 8 has now two verses. It's verse 7 and 8. But verse 7, the original, this one here, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, is completely taken out, completely deleted. But verse 8 is split in half and shoved into the position of verse 7. So when you look at it, verse 7 is still there. A lie. A lie. It's a lie. Turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation, last book of the Bible. Should be an easy one to find, unless you've got a real massive concordance, which always makes it a little bit harder. Book of Revelation, chapter 19. Revelation, chapter 19. Verses 11 to 13, the word of God says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Who's he referring to? Who's in righteousness? It's Jesus. It's our Lord. It's Jesus. Verse 12, His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Is it any wonder, brethren, that when you reject his words, you reject him? For he that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in that day. An intimate relationship that we grossly distort when we attempt to separate our Lord from his words. There is no such separation. Our Lord is a reliable witness. He is identified as the very word of God. But at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Brethren, if the, if the question of translation stumps you, as it did me, because that's a tough one, does God, does, God, does God speak in any other languages other than Aramaic, Hebrew and Greek? Does he? I don't know. The one that actually confused the languages to give us thousands of comprehensible languages at the Tower of Babel? Can he furnish us with the word of God in our language? Can we have a perfect translation? The Bible doesn't say anywhere in, in there. You can't look anywhere and see. Um, oh, yeah, there it is. See, King James Version is a perfect translation of my word. It doesn't say that, you know. The Bible says we have to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we look for evidence within the text. We look for evidence within scripture. When Joseph, remember Joseph? Joseph with the Technicolor dream coat that he had. And he went into Egypt and he became second in charge of the land. Second in charge of the land. When he spoke to his brethren, okay, when the brethren came, he used an interpreter. What language did he speak? He spoke in Egyptian. Yeah, we have it penned in the Hebrew tongue. Was that not a perfect translation? Think about it. 400 years the Israelites were in Egypt. 400 years. Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's household. He was brought up in, there in his own home for 40 years. He was there as a babe, found on the water, brought up in the house of Pharaoh for 40 years. Then he murdered someone, went into the wilderness for another 40 years. 
During this whole period of time, were they speaking Egyptian or Hebrew? Oh, we don't really know. They certainly kept the language, right? But then he goes to Pharaoh with Aaron, his brother. Did he address him in the Hebrew tongue or did he address him in the Egyptian tongue? Yet we have it in the Hebrew, in the original. Is that not a perfect translation? We're saying that God missed something in translation there? Did God lose any words through translation there? Brethren, everywhere in the Old Testament a name is given and so many times we have the translation of what that name is. This is the name of Noah, the same shall comfort us. What does Noah mean? It means they shall, he shall comfort us. It gives us the interpretation. We have that right through scripture. Do we stop there? Paul, when he addressed the people, the Hebrews, the Jews, his fellow people in the book of Acts, he spoke in the Hebrew tongue in Acts chapter 22. Didn't he? Well, we've got it penned in Greek. We've got it in Greek. Is that not a perfect translation? Has God got a problem with translating his word perfectly for his people? Brethren, every single time Jesus quoted the Old Testament, we have it in Greek. Could the word not give us his word perfectly? Have we got a problem? Our problem's not with the Lord, guys. us. It's pride. When our Lord spoke and he said on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is that not a perfect translation? When he took the damsel by the hand and he said unto her, Talithai kume, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Is that not a perfect translation? For the Greek people that were reading this, did they appreciate the interpretation? I think they appreciated the interpretation. Was it better for them? Yes, it was better for them. I'm not, don't get me wrong, I'm not sitting there saying that the Hebrew or the English is better than the Greek or the Hebrew. I'm not saying that at all. But for us who need to live by faith, for us that need to live by the word of God, it is. It has to be. How do we know? We've got to read lexicon after lexicon to find out what God really said. And mate, some of those lexicons, I've got to tell you, be careful. Be really careful. God has given us his words. I want to try and wrap this up real quick now. Psalm 119 verse 89 says simply, Forever thy Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Has God always preserved his words? Yes. How? No one knows. No one knows. But there's never been a time in history or eternity where the word of God did not exist in some form. Our Lord is the word of God. A rebellious nature. Fourth point. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him. The rebellious, proud nature of man together with the deceitful serpent, the devil has wrought folly amongst Christians. Confusion rules the day and the love of many has waxed cold. That the modern Bible versions are corrupt to the nth degree will take far too long to demonstrate to you here. But it will take a reasonable amount of ignorance on our part to not recognise that there's a problem. You know, to obtain a copyright for any book, it has to be at least... 25% 25% original work. 25% original work. How many modern Bible versions do we have? Hundreds, mate. Hundreds. 25% of the text has to be an original work. Otherwise you can't get a copyright. What did they have to change? In a book called The Making of a Contemporary Translation, 1991, Kenneth Barker was the editor... It's the book that actually talks about the creation of the NIV. Do you know what he says they used? A thesaurus. They used a thesaurus to come up with these different words. Can you imagine God with a thesaurus? Do you imagine God with a thesaurus? What's another word for thesaurus? Anyway, Paul's words ring in our mind. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. They were corrupting the word of God right back in Paul's day. 
He identified it. Weird to think that anything's different today. Our charge is to believe the word of God regarding his faithfulness and what he's promised. Speaking to the rich man in hell, the Lord simply stated, If they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. If you won't hear the word of God, you won't be persuaded anywhere else. If you won't hear and listen and look at the verses that we've just gone through, you're not going to be persuaded any other way. You won't be. You have to believe the words of God and what he actually said. The Bible teaches the difference between the words of God, that they're not difficult to discern. Remember I was telling you that I was in the charismatic church there and they would come up and they would have words of knowledge and dreams and all that sort of stuff. You know when you actually read something like the New King James, which was my Bible, I have to tell you. My first Bible was the NIV. My second Bible was the New King James because I found there's a whole bunch of problems with the NIV. Do you know when I read the King James... Oh, there's a difference. Man, it's a massive difference. I, can't, I couldn't explain it at the time. But I remembered when I first picked it up, I thought there's so much depth here, I can't get my head around this. You know? But the Spirit of God that dwells in me is the same Spirit that actually wrote the text. you know that? If we would just continue reading it, it will come out and make, it clear, make itself clear. But Jeremiah had this issue. Jeremiah 23, 26. How long shall this be in the heart of the prophets that prophesy lies? This is the Lord speaking. Yea, they are prophets of they are prophets of the deceit of their own heart, which think to cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbour, as their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell the dream. He that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? Saith the Lord, what is the chaff to the wheat? My word is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. You know why they want to change his words? They don't like the authority. They don't like the authority. The authority to them they want to despise. It's no different. You're working towards being a police officer and doing that work, people are going to hate you. Why? Because you're an authority figure. Fathers... You're an authority figure within your own home. The first plan of attack that Satan has is to destroy you and to make you less in the eyes of those that you govern. All right. If you're the only one in the household, if you're a mother that's a, a single mum, you're an authority figure, brethren. If you're a police officer, you're an authority figure. If you're the prime minister, you're an authority figure. People will naturally hate and despise authority. Why? Because we have her in a rebellious nature. But see, the word of God can't help but be an authority. Why? Because it is the authority. It doesn't matter what people want to say. It can't be dethroned. The Bible says that we are leaders within our own home. Do you know, whether you choose to lead or you don't choose to lead, you are still a leader. As a man, you are still a leader, even if you don't want to lead. The word of God's the same. It speaks authoritatively because it is the authority. Five, last point, a right mind. A right mind. The just shall live by his faith. What is established in this sermon today is that the word of God is that which we are to live by faith in. What could not be ignored is the mass confusion caused by the many fabrications in the English language. The only language, incidentally, to have this problem to such an extent. And it competes for your affections. Why is the English language the one that has 200 plus different versions of the word of God? No other language comes close to the English language. The others have one, two, sometimes three, you know. But over 200 in the English language. Is it not curious to you that this is the language of the last days? Is it not curious to you that this is the language which the entire world speaks. We have commerce, we have entertainment, we have education, we have everything all spoken in this language. This, this language which only really appeared around about 600 AD and it appeared very different to the form that we have today. I've done a study on the English language. It's an incredible history, right? You know, when God spoke to his people, he chose out a people, didn't he? He chose out a people for his own name, and he spoke unto them in what? The Hebrew tongue. When God wanted to get the word of God out to all the people, he moved this man, Alexander, the son of Peter of Macedon. 
Alexander the Great. He moved him to conquer the known world at that time and develop another language. The whole language that he had, he brought to the entire world, the Hellenistic language, the Greek language. And just at that time, our Lord was born. Just at that time, the time at its full, our Lord came into the world. And we had the word of God in that language. And there's been several moves since then. We had the Latin come through with the Romans. But now we have the English. English is the dominant language of the world. Would it be just for the Lord to be confusing in the English language just when we need it the most? The just shall live by his faith. Brethren, the problem has never been God's lack of ability to translate his words. The problem is in us. The fleshly hearts that we have been given when we were born again become hardened by, de- by deception, sin and most particularly pride. The decision to believe the words of God by faith and what he has promised and spoken is yours. And you, my brethren, will be vastly more honourable than I. Well, I said to you, I didn't come this way by faith. I didn't come this way by reading this, the, the verses in the scripture. Like Thomas, I wanted to see the print of the nails. I wanted to thrust my hand into his side. And the Lord told me not to be faithless, but believing. I didn't trust God's own word first. I had to see the corruption. I read until my mind was filled with both the dross and the pearls of other men, until finally I sought it by faith. Although I had all the information, the answer didn't perfectly come until a right mind decided to believe by faith. Because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they which have not seen and believed. They just live by faith. There's more than enough information out there. But you have to first believe God's words. If you won't, nothing's going to convince you. I hope it was a blessing to you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your words. I thank you for the wonderful truth of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I thank you, dear Lord, that we are born again, that we are saved by the blood of the word, that we are saved by our Lord and our Saviour. Thank you, dear Lord, and I pray, dear Father, that within our own hearts you will help us to grow in our faith, to know the target of our faith, what it is that we are to believe in, what it is that we are to trust. And let us not be, dear Lord, as, the, as those that have so fallen away, Father, we pray for those other churches. We pray for those Christian brethren of ours that are not believing. We pray for them, dear Lord, and we ask you, dear Father, that you would stir up their faith, dear Lord, that they would live for you and that we might be able to live, trust the word of God, believe, and share the wonderful news of salvation to those that are around us. We have a firm foundation, Lord, something that will not change, a rock, a high tower, firm foundation, dear Lord. In Jesus' name, I pray that you would be with us and let our conversation be edifying unto thee. In Jesus' glorious name, amen.